You're listening to What Does the Word Say, a series of podcasts on biblical theology produced by Grace and Glory Media. My name is Mark Roby, and I'm your host for this series. Our teacher is Dr. Richard Spencer. We're resuming our study of systematic theology today by looking at what the Bible says about delegated authority. Dr. Spencer, how do you want to begin? I want to begin with Jesus' statement in Matthew 28, verse 18. He said, quote, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, unquote. Now, this is a very interesting statement when you consider that it's made by Jesus Christ, who is the eternal second person of the Holy Trinity. In other words, he's God, and clearly all authority belonged to him. After all, he is the author of creation. So we should ask why Jesus says that all authority has been given to him. Who can give to God? The answer is that God the Father gave all authority to the Son, who, although he was eternally God, had become the unique God-man, our Redeemer. It was in this capacity as God-man that all authority was given to him. There is order within the Godhead. While the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are equal in essence, there is nonetheless an agreed-upon order in their relations. What theologians call the economic trinity. That's right, and of course it has nothing to do with money. Nowadays the word economy is used almost exclusively in relation to money and the generation of goods and services, but it also used to refer to the management of affairs, and that's why there used to be college degrees, for example, in home economics, which referred to managing the home. In the case of the economic trinity, it refers to the roles taken by the three persons of the Godhead in relation to creation. We don't want to dwell on this now, although we'll get into it more in a later session, but theologians rightly distinguish between the ontological equality of the three persons of the Godhead and their economic relations. I think it'd be good to define a term that you just used. The word ontology refers to a branch of metaphysics dealing with the fundamental nature of things. So by ontological equality, you mean that the three persons of the Godhead are equal in their being or substance. That's exactly what it means. And the economic trinity refers to the fact that the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit agreed in eternity past to take on different roles in relation to creation. So while there is always cooperation among the persons of the Godhead in every act, nonetheless, the Bible teaches that it is primarily the Father who planned our salvation, the Son who accomplished our salvation, and the Holy Spirit who applies salvation to individual believers. We will again get into this more in a later session, but it's important for our present discussion because it shows that having ordered relations does not necessarily imply any essential difference in being or honor. When Jesus says, for example, that the Father is greater than I in John fourteen twenty eight, he is not in any way denying his own deity. He is speaking about his voluntarily assumed position of subordination in the plan of salvation. Now, that's a difficult concept for someone who has been raised in our present egalitarian culture to understand. We are immersed in a culture that virtually despises any notion that one person can be called greater than another, unless that person actually is greater in some sense. You're absolutely right about that. And when we talk about authority, we specifically mean that someone is greater in the sense of being over me. In other words, that person has a right to expect obedience from me, at least in some limited sphere of activity. There you go with that word obedience again. You're not going to make us popular. <laughs> yeah, authority and obedience are not popular ideas in our culture, but they should be. 
because authority is given by God for the good of those who are under it. In some cases, we can be forced to obey. For example, young children can be forced by their parents to obey, and police are given power by the state to force you to obey in some situations. But the proper position, as given to us by the Bible, is that we should voluntarily come under those in authority and should be thankful for it. We should respect those who are over us, whether it be our parents, our boss, our pastor, a policeman, or whoever. When I was young, a boss or someone else in authority was sometimes called a superior. That word would be very politically incorrect to use now. I'm sure it would be. People don't like to accept any notion that a father, a mother, a boss, a policeman, or anyone else should be thought of as superior in some way. But we impoverish ourselves when we think this way. Authority is necessary, and it is good. This is true within a family, within the church, and within the state. All three of the spheres of society that the Bible delineates. Someone may be my superior because they truly are superior to me in some way, such as a parent, teacher, or boss who may know a lot more than I do. But even if I know more than they do, or am naturally superior in some other way, They are still my superior if they have delegated authority over me in some situation. To say they are superior to me is not a value judgment. It is simply saying that they have a right to expect my obedience and I should respect and obey them. Without authority, you have chaos. And I might argue that our society is in chaos even now. I would agree with you. And I think a large part of the problem is a complete lack of respect for authority a lack of respect for authority of both individuals and institutions. But I will resist the temptation to dive into that topic further for now because I want to go back to what the Word of God tells us, and it tells us that we must submit to all delegated authorities. You are, I suspect, referring to Romans 13, verse 1, which says everyone must submit himself to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. That is the classic verse with regard to civil authorities. But let's go on and read verse 2 as well, because it makes a very important point. It says, quote, Consequently, he who rebels against authority is rebelling against what God has instituted, and those who do so will bring judgment on themselves, end quote. God is very clearly telling us that he has established all delegated authorities and that to disobey them is to disobey God, and it will lead to judgment. I'm sure that many people will bristle at that statement. What about when the commands we are given are unreasonable? Uh, The Bible doesn't tell me to obey only reasonable commands or to obey only reasonable rulers. Think about who the ruling authorities were when Paul wrote Romans. He probably wrote Romans about 57 AD when Nero was the emperor of Rome. Now, admittedly, Nero was not as bad as he became later, but we're still talking about a wicked government, and yet Paul says we must submit to its authority. There are, of course, limits. We see in many places in the Bible that if we're told to sin, we must refuse. I think it'd be good to go through some of those examples. The one that comes to my mind immediately is Acts 4, where the apostles Peter and John were commanded by the Jewish ruling council, the Sanhedrin, to stop preaching in the name of Christ. In verses 19 through 20, they replied, quote, Judge for yourselves whether it is right in God's sight to obey you rather than God. For we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. That is the first verse that comes to mind, but there are other examples as well. We can go all the way back to the Israelites' time of bondage in Egypt 
we're told in Exodus 1 that a new ruler came to power in Egypt who didn't know Joseph, who our listeners may remember had risen to be second in command under Pharaoh. In any event, this new ruler looked at the Jews and was worried that they were becoming too numerous. So he commanded that all Jewish baby boys should be killed. In Exodus 1, verse 17, we're told that, quote, The midwives, however, feared God and did not do what the king of Egypt had told them to do. They let the boys live, end quote. We're also told that Moses' parents did not obey this edict. There are a number of other biblical examples of refusing to obey a command to sin, including Daniel's three companions refusing to worship King Nebuchadnezzar's image, and the wise men not going back to Herod to tell him where the infant Jesus was. The excellent commentary on Romans by Pastor Matthew lists nine such examples. All right, we've established that a Christian is duty-bound to disobey if he or she is commanded to sin, but is that the only circumstance in which we can or should disobey? In general, yes. We could also add, I suppose, that we may disobey when someone gives us a command but has no standing to do so. Uh, For example, if some stranger on the street demands to see my ID, I don't think it would be at all wise to obey. But if a police officer asks to see my ID, I, I should comply. At some point, it gets pretty silly, though, looking for exceptions to the rule, so let's not bother. That sounds like a good idea. So the basic principle is that we should obey all proper delegated authorities unless they tell us to sin. But earlier, you said that authority is good. Do you want to say more about that? Yes, I I want to say a great deal more about that. God gives authority to people for the good of those who are under their authority. Sticking to the civil authorities as a first example, let's continue in Romans 13 and look at verses 3 and 4, where Paul tells us that, quote, Rulers hold no terror for those who do right, but for those who do wrong. Do you want to be free from fear of the one in authority? Then do what is right, and he will commend you. For he is God's servant to do you good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword for nothing. He is God's servant, an agent of wrath to bring punishment on the wrongdoer. End quote. We see three very important points in these two verses. First, we see that civil leaders, whether they are Christians or not, are God's servants, which implies that they will have to give an account to him for how they do their jobs and that he can sovereignly overrule them at any time. I'm confident that very few civil authorities believe that. I'm sure you're right about that, but whether they know it or not does not change the reality. The second important point we see in that passage is that civil authorities are to do good to those who do what is right. In other words, they are to rule for the benefit of those who are under their authority. And thirdly, we see that the state is given the power of the sword, which can be taken in two ways. First, the state has the sword to defend its citizens from foreign powers who seek to harm them. And secondly, the state has the power of the sword to punish wrongdoers. Note that this power to punish wrongdoers is part of how the state does good to those who do what is right. It's for our benefit that we have laws that punish people who murder, rape, rob, and so on. As Pastor Matthew put it in his commentary on Romans, quote, government exists to ensure order and peace, not tyranny or anarchy. Order and peace are certainly good, and it's hard to imagine how you obtain them without the state having authority. In fact, I would say it's impossible to imagine maintaining them without authority. The simple fact is that we're all sinners. Because of that, we need locks on our doors, passwords on our accounts, laws, police, jails, and so on. We can, of course, have legitimate and fruitful discussions about the best way to implement all of these things. 
But if the state has no authority, you would have anarchy, and that would not be conducive to a productive, safe, or enjoyable life for anyone. And nor would it be conducive to our coming to know Jesus as Lord and Savior and to tell others about him. Which is certainly a good part of the reason God provides civil governments. But authority is not limited to the civil government. As we noted earlier, there are three spheres of society, and the most fundamental of these is the family. So there must be authority in a family as well. The classic passage about this is in Paul's letter to the church in Ephesus. I'm sure you're talking about Ephesians 5, verses 22 through 33, right? Right. This is a passage that is much despised outside and even inside the church today. Paul writes, quote, Wives, submit to your husbands, as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is the Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church, without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In this same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated his own body, but he feeds and cares for it, just as Christ does the church, for we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I am talking about Christ and the church. However, each one of you also must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband, end quote. I'm sure some of our listeners are again bristling. I've noticed the looks on the faces of guests in the audience when we read a portion of this passage during a wedding service at our church. I've seen the same looks. The idea that a husband would have any authority in the home is almost completely foreign to our society and sounds very chauvinistic, if not downright abusive. And yet it's the man who's commanded to love his wife as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her which is a pretty high calling. You make a very important point. If authority is used in the way it's supposed to be used, it isn't just not abusive, it is a great blessing to those who come under that authority. And the husband who does not discuss things with his wife and carefully take her thoughts and desires into account when making decisions is a fool and is not governing properly. And his decisions are always to be what he thinks best for the whole family, not just for himself. When people think that Bible-believing Christians want to keep their wives ignorant and dependent, I always think it's good for them to read Proverbs 31. That's a great passage to show the ideal Christian wife. Starting in verse 10, that chapter says in part, A wife of noble character who can find. She is worth far more than rubies. Her husband has full confidence in her and lacks nothing of value. She gets up while it is still dark. She provides food for her family and portions for her servant girls. She considers a field and buys it. Out of her earnings, she plants a vineyard. She sees that her trading is profitable and her lamp does not go out at night, end quote. That is not the picture of a person who is subjugated and treated as some kind of slave. No, it isn't. But I think we'll need to continue to look at authority in the home next time because we're just about out of time today. I'd like to remind our listeners to email their questions and comments to info at what does the word say.org you've been listening to what does the word say brought to you by grace and glory media and i'm mark roby 
In our next session, Dr. Spencer will continue to examine what the Bible says about authority in the home, and we hope you'll join us. The session you heard today is available, along with all other sessions, in the archive on our website at whatdoesthewordsay.org. We also have a free book available to you entitled Good News for All People, written by Rev. P.G. Matthew, founder and senior minister of Grace Valley Christian Center. To request your free copy of this excellent summary on the biblical message of salvation, go to whatdoesthewordsay.org.